What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. I am Dr. Pamela, and today we are going to be talking about wealth. What does it mean to generate wealth? There's so many different aspects to our health and wellness and our well-being, and wealth is a very important part of that. I know that in the church, we've also often been um, kind of uh, I don't know, stigmatized when it comes to the idea of building wealth and, and, and that unless we are giving to the church. But we have to destigmatize that whole idea of gaining wealth and building ourselves financially so that we can be more prosperous and live out our purpose and walk our purpose. So I definitely am looking forward to this conversation because um, there are so many strategies, there are so many opportunities um, that we didn't have before, and there are some barriers, and there is still that thing called um, systematic, systemic racism that sometimes um, attempts to block our ability to uh, accumulate wealth to build our financial status, um, to be able to own. So during the first hour, we're really going to be looking at this idea of, um, you know, our financial well-being, um, building wealth. What does that mean? Uh, but we're also, in the second hour, going to be looking at home ownership and some of the challenges and opportunities that um, are a part of that. So I am really excited about this show. We also have some research, as always, that we're going to be looking at, as well as a little bit of a recap of what happened last night in that uh, in that presidential debate. So we've got so much to talk about. I want you to join us. We are also streaming on Facebook, so if you want to see us, Join us on Facebook. Give us some comments. We will definitely respond. Um, And I really am looking forward to the show because there are many things that I've learned, but there are many more things that I look forward to learning. So stay with us on the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela. And today we are talking about what it means to build health. And so we are going to look at this from a lot of different points of view, from the practical application to mindset to health and wellness. So I'm really excited about today's show. I really am encourage you all to get involved, to send comments via Facebook, and um, we'll definitely acknowledge those and get this conversation going. So let me invite our, our invite, introduce our first guest. Um, So after a successful six and a half year tenure as a decorated military war veteran, Ahmad R. Perry Sr. became a strategic businessman and leader with a strong work ethic to provide solutions at the highest level. He applied his military training to formalize how he could impact the world. The military service, his military service included four years in the United States Marine Corps and two and a half years in the United States Army. Upon business success, but failing health-wise, he was inspired to take back control of his life, which resulted in the loss of 60 pounds in three months. So we're definitely going to be talking about that. The experience of transforming his body redirected his vision of his life. With his renewed mindset, he walked into a $100 million private equity fund in commercial real estate. 
Because of that experience, financial prosperity for philanthropy became his goal. Perry's appetite and desire for, for, for philanthropy increased tremendously. He began working with the community to spread awareness by utilizing his nonprofit organization called Generation to Come Foundation. So I am going to just welcome Ahmad R. Perry. Welcome, Ahmad. Thank you. I think you're muted. Are you unmuted? Let's see. Say hello. <laughs> I am unmuted. How's it going, Dr. Oh, Kim? Great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Can't complain. Thanks for asking. This is quite the story, um, and I really look forward to you telling us a little bit more about this story. First thing I want to ask, and this is just based on my own ignorance in how the U.S. military works, but I have to ask because I was surprised when I saw it. I did not know that you can do multiple branches. Is that yeah. common? Most, most people uh, ask that same question. How did you go from the Marine Corps to the Army? But it's very common for uh, veterans to switch branches after, a, um, after your first contract is over. Um, okay. that's when I did it. I did four years in the Marine Corps, then I became an investment advisor. And then after I became an investment advisor, I went back into the military and joined the army. Wow. Okay. I, yeah, I had no idea. So I've already learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. Is there, um, it, you know, how different were those two experiences, Marines versus army or, or were they similar? So the Marine Corps is the toughest military, uh, basic training, um, and all the branches. Now, people may say different if you ask other people from other branches. So when I joined the Army, it was more like, all right, I've already been trained to be a Marine. So the Army should be a little bit more easier. Um, but I was out of shape. So I didn't want to go back to the Marine Corps after taking that year off. Got so it. once I joined the Army, um, I like a lot of stuff about the Army or a lot more relaxed than the Marine Corps. <laughs> so I was able to like exceed, you know, pretty, pretty um, well because of the training that I had in the Marine Corps. Got it. Okay. Okay. So tell us about the, the 60 pounds weight loss in three months. And, and then you mentioned here that there are some health issues. Was that the health issue or were there other health no, issues? I was, I was working about 21 hour days. Uh, mm. My relationship was failing at the time. I was helping uh, manage a company, uh, a $30 million government contracting company. We're doing about a million dollars a month and payroll and I was overweight. So one day I bent over to uh, tie my shoe. I was gasping for air. And there's another mm -hmm. incident where I bent over, I was bringing in a, a, a file cabinet into an office and I bent over and my pants split up the seat. Oh, so I was like, no, I'm too big. <laughs> I want to be 40 <laughs> in the 40, but not 40 in the waistline in the 40. So um, got it. that inspired me to lose weight July 3rd, 2017. I okay. lost 60 pounds from July to October. Wow. Wow. Okay. So how did you do it? I, I have to ask. I know we're talking about wealth, but we need to get this foundational stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all connected. I promise you. I, 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 stopped, I believe it. <laughs> I stopped eating meat. I, I adapted a, a pescatarian, vegetarian diet, and I cut back on my sugars and carbs. Wow. And, and, and then I was running three to four miles every single day. Wow. Um, nonstop. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So there, I was going to say triple threat, but you added the running. So that's three. I mean, that's four. That's four. Um, I, that's great. I mean, the combination of those things. I mean, myself, um, it's a low carb and it's running and walking, but you have the pescatarian and no meat um, <laughs> uh, that you've, that you've also included there. So, wow. Good for you. That's yeah. Amazing. I, I've only done that one time. I've 
I eat meat now. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but you did it to, do that, to get to where you needed to go. So I mean, right? I, you know, that's 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 pretty amazing. Um. So okay. So you then went into um. Uh, first of all, this one hundred million dollar private equity fund. Can you tell us about that? What that is? How you came about? You know, getting this. So my background is uh, business development, and um, I've always been, you know, dealing with like C-level executives, putting together business contracts, selling like highly complex deals. And this particular um, engagement, I was at a business club and I was talking to a real estate developer. And I was telling him about an idea that I had. And he was like, yeah, we should play golf. And we played golf, told him my story. He's like, I like you. He said, I'm going to put $100 million in your hand. And wow. he invited me into the deal, sent me paperwork over. And um we're actually building a building on the west side of Atlanta right now. Nice. It's a commercial mixed use, commercial mixed use unit, and uh, I help raise money for that fund. And then there are some other properties um, with some other people that I met because of that deal that um, we're raising capital for as well. So, um, wow. so there's something yeah. about being uh, connected in the right places with the right people, um, it, as well as, of course, having some level of experience. Um, the golf course is this is this something that people need to start integrating into their social life? I was told when I became an investment advisor, or before I became an investment advisor, I was told that there are more business transactions that are uh, closed on the golf course than the boardroom. So I was told that when I was uh, 19, 20 years old. And that always stuck with me. So I've always been around the game of golf since that time. I didn't get serious about it until I turned 30. But that's when I started realizing that a lot of stuff that I had at my disposal at 19 and 20, I had misused. And by the time I turned 30, it's like, oh, man, I misused a lot of resources. So let me try to do the right thing now. So that's why I created the um, the organization to kind of just spread that awareness and um, train and coach as many people as I can. I love it. And that's exactly what I was going to I was going to ask is that the, the foundation, I'm assuming, will help that 20, 19 year old figure out how to better utilize their their resources. I, I love it. Well, we have a lot more to talk about and to cover. Um, we're going to go to a break. Those of you who are watching, definitely throw your questions in the question box. Already a wealth of information. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's trending in the world and then bring it right back to wealth. So stay with us. We'll be right back. And the fact is, Joe Biden has been very clear. He will not raise taxes on anybody who makes less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. Repeal the Trump tax cuts, Mr. Vice President. I'm speaking. I'm speaking. We don't need a massive two trillion dollar Green New Deal that would impose all new mandates on American businesses and American families. Let me also say, the American people deserve to know. Vice President, I did. Welcome back to the live exchange. Um, one of the things that um, so last night was the vice presidential debate um, with Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President. Um, I was going to say Vice President Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> with, uh, vice President uh, Pence, Pence, Pence. Pence. Um, and what's interesting is you know there there was a lot of talk about um, you know her facial expressions and um, and just kind of how she carry to maintain herself of of course the big headline is the fly that sat on Pence's head for for quite some time and I, I'm watching live and I actually snapped a shot of it 
posted it like what's going on what's up with this this <laughs> is uh you know um but i will say that um i i do i think that that kamala presented herself quite well there she um it's several times she said i'm talking i'm speaking i'm speaking um i'm gonna create a t-shirt i probably shouldn't tell the world i'm speaking um so yeah so it was a very interesting debate i i don't know that i expected anything different i don't know i'm curious to know what you think ahmad if you're feeling free to to express yourself in this arena <laughs> well you know i was watching uh the debate and when i saw the flight i was like is that a fly on his head is that a fly there's a bug in his Head. So, and then next thing you know, I checked Twitter and it was all over the place. But yeah. um, I think they, I think that she handled herself pretty well, and um, I think it was a decent debate. You know, it wasn't both candidates trying to scream and talk over each, each other, but they, yeah. they both did pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I think it was definitely much better than uh, the first one we saw. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. I, I, uh, the headline I saw this morning is that for the presidential debate, um, it, it's scheduled for next week, but it's supposed to be. I see the smirk on your face, but it's supposed to be, <laughs> um, it's supposed to be virtual. And um, to that knowledge, Donald Trump has said that he will not debate if it's virtual, which is interesting. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how all this plays out. It's very interesting. Um, it, and, you know, and I, I, I have to ask this. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. But there are certainly some financial and wealth building um, implications with this election, um, you know, on both sides, they're talking about, um, you know, stimulus packages and, and so forth. I would be curious to hear your your point of view on on some of the things that might have stood out to you, um, not necessarily with just this, this debate, but just in general um, with regards to finances. With the uh, vice president debate? Um, you no, know, I mean, just in general, with this election, you know. Oh, with, with the, the election. Um, there, yeah. there are... A lot of things. So when I was uh, running the company that was doing government contract, and that was under the Obama administration. And there are a lot of things that goes on behind the scenes in business um, that most Americans are not even aware of. And it was extremely hard with the Affordable Care Act because everybody had to be insured. And that caused a, you know, a struggle for the business. So different policies and different um, opportunities that both parties bring to the table during election years are very critical to small business owners and finances. And the largest tax that any person pays in this country, I mean, the largest expense in this country is taxes. Yeah. And most people are not even aware of it. If you not make, for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Not for all of us. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, if, if you're... If you, you're getting paid W two income. You're you're probably paying the highest percentage of taxes. Um, right. Jeff Bezos don't pay taxes because he's taking advantage of uh, tax codes that's available to him through a corporation. So it's just those things that we need to think about um, and leverage to our benefit instead of just you know taking what they push out to us in the media. Now that was a that's a that's an I guess a newsflash for me that Jeff Bezos doesn't pay you know, taxes because of the benefits. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we need to be paying attention to and understanding and having a literacy around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when the, when the financial crash happened in 2007, I was right in the middle of being in, in my investment advisor career. And I like, I saw it. I was like, wow, this is crazy. But if you notice, if you look back, the government bailed out corporations, they didn't bail out individuals. Right. 
right? Uh, companies that had bad books. Say that again. Large corporations, right? I large, mean, small large, large corporations. So I, right. I used to tell my friends at the time, like, yo, you need to incorporate. We need to incorporate. We need to incorporate. I posted mm -hmm. on my Facebook. You need to incorporate. It doesn't matter if you make forty thousand dollars in your corporation. You need to incorporate. You know, if you make forty thousand dollars on ten ninety nine income, that's almost better than a hundred thousand dollars W two income. Wow. Because with W two income, you're taxed first. If you're working on your corporation, you pay taxes after you paid out your expenses. So it's just those little things that we could, we need to be aware of if we're going to participate in the financial game and win the financial game because we need to win the financial game. But we just need to know how to play. I think Albert Einstein said, um, learn the rules of the game and play it better than anybody else. So we need to learn the rules of the money game and play it better than so I have a question. You know, in, in April, there was an activist and she was and I wish I can remember her name right now, but it's such a spur of the moment question. Um, she was <clears throat> really kind of going viral. And what her, um, I guess, analogy was, was that we're playing Monopoly in a you know larger society, larger scale. And the game is skewed. Um, and this yes. is really to speak to the institutional, I, I guess, racism that 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 is, you know, a part of this country and that there's, you know, certain rules that that, that some people get that, that, that others don't. And so, um, you know, how do you play the game when it is skewed in so many different ways? Uh, you just you got to play it. Uh, you got to play it. You got to learn. You got to see that it's skewed, know that it's skewed and still position yourself to to win that game now you may not get all of the benefits of playing the game in your lifetime but you can set it up for your children that's coming behind you so we got to get out of thinking everything for us and start thinking generational we got to think 100 200 years ahead oh that's so powerful we're going to go away but when we come back i, I want to delve into that a little bit more because a lot of people just dismiss themselves from the game they say, you know what it's skewed i'm not playing this game i'm out and i'm just going to do my own thing and i hear you saying that's not the way to go so when that's we come not the back, way to go. we're going to talk more about that so stay with us Um, today we are talking about um, money mindset. Well, well, money mindset. We're talking about wealth, but we, you know, money mindset is a big part of that as, as well. And I'm joined. I'm joined by Ahmad R. Perry. And um, right before the break, uh, Ahmad, you were talking about how important it is to stay in the game. Um, you know, at what point do people get jaded from the game? Um, and and what do you tell them? What's your recommendation? I say that we live in a country that is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And just being born in this country gives you an opportunity. So don't listen to the hype and don't buy the hype. I say that all the time. Don't buy the hype. Yeah. Go behind the scenes and find out what's really going on for yourself and don't just take you know, what's being pushed on social media or in the media. There's another story going on behind the scenes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that is important, um, an important message. Um, we, yes, there are, they, there's no denying. Yes, there, there are people who, who know the game, play the game, you know, manipulate the game. Um, but that is really, that it's all the more reason for us to get our hands in there um, right. and, and get involved. Curious, when you are working with 19 year olds and, and, and maybe, you know, what is the age range um, before I even delve into that question? Is there is I actually it I actually work with the family, the head of the families first. If I can get the mother and the father 
Uh, the kids are easy, right? Uh, but what you don't want to do is you don't want to get the kids and the mother and the father is not on, on board because now that child is in an environment that may not be conducive to the ideas that I may be introducing to them. So mm -hmm. um, I work with the people who control the environment and then you can take care of everything in the environment. After that. I love it. I love it. Okay. So well, what I was going to ask is because you mentioned at 1920, um, you didn't have uh, you didn't utilize, I guess, uh, the, the resources in the in the best way that you know how at this stage. Um, what would you tell somebody who's that age now um, in terms of how to do that? You're already rich. You're, all, you're already adding to your wealth. Um, I think a lot of times we make decisions out of emotions because mm -hmm. we're trying to feel rich or look rich. And that's um, that's an identity <laughs> issue. It's <laughs> an identity issue, but um, yeah. you know, you're already rich. You're already wealthy. All you have to do is to accumulate that wealth and continue to add to that wealth. But you're already born, born in a wealthy state of abundance. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is so good because you're right. When you're trying to become something that you don't believe you already are, it's more about what's on the outside. It's all about let me show this. Let me make it look like I have this. Um, mm -hmm. As opposed to when you're already that and you operate in that, what does it look mm -hmm. like for somebody who already believes that about themselves and they're operating in that belief? It, 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 it looks there's a variety of uh, the ways that it looks right. Uh, two years ago, I had this luxury Audi A8L black on black curtains in the back, you know, looking real presidential when you pull up. <laughs> but um, I got rid of the car because it was taking away from my net worth. And I mm. made a decision at that time. Um, I'm not going to buy anything that takes away from my net worth. And I'm not going right. to buy anything that doesn't make me money. So for me, I haven't driven uh, my own car in two years. I haven't owned a car in two years. So what do you mean? What are you driving? You haven't driven your own car. I call Uber. Ah, there you and go. I, and I invest the, the car payment, the insurance, the maintenance on the car, all that money is in the market. I'm nice. totally free. I have no personal debt. Wow. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Um, I have to acknowledge a comment on Facebook um, by Chinasa Elue, Dr. Chinasa Elue. She says you walk in freedom um, yes. when you're that way. Talk about that freedom. So uh, this is weird because we a lot of women in our culture have been taught to, you know, go to school, get a job. You know, it's more educated women than men out here. So um, I knew that if I went to college, my sister couldn't go to college. So I joined the military. I didn't get the basketball scholarship to the University of Alabama. So I joined the military. Wow. And over 10 years, I finished my bachelor's degree. The military paid for it. So I, didn't, I don't have student loan debt. So walking in freedom is if I have an idea I put that idea out there. I find the people that support that idea and I go after that idea versus making decisions to pay my bills. I, I, I don't think like that. I don't, I don't think about bills. I think about what problem can I solve in the community? How fast can I solve it? And how many people can I help? Wow. That, no, that is, that's freedom. <laughs> that's freedom. It's, it, it's freedom to walk in your purpose. Um, you know, without having to think twice, can I afford it? Where am I going to get the, you know, funds. And of course, that that may be a question. I mean, you you again with this one hundred million dollar private equity fund, um, you were in the right place, the right time, right people, right know how, right you know, 
experience. Um, that seems a bit overwhelming for some people, you know, yeah, okay, he did that, but like, I can really do that. How does that become more practical and, and attainable for people? It's, it's very practical because when I was invited into that deal, I had no clue of how I was going to raise the money. So I just started asking people within my network, hey, do you know anybody that can invest in this type of fund? Do you know anybody that can invest in this type of fund? Mm-hmm. And you'll be surprised of what's in your network. You'll be surprised of who people are connected to in your network. So you have to believe it first that it can happen because I heard you mention about um, the Bible and Christians and church. The Bible says that God has given us the power to get wealth. Yes. So you have to believe it first and then you have to act out of that belief. And right. I just, I believe all kind of crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, and, and that there's a lot of, there's a lot, in my opinion, there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and I think that, and, and I bring up the church because I think that a lot of us have been wounded with certain mindsets that we think that, I guess the order in which wealth is um, distributed um, mm-hmm. has been done with scare tests tactics and, and and don't get me wrong i'm i'm very much um a believer in in, in everything i just realized that we can't pursue our wealth with fear um right. you know and and what you just said i mean the, the 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 scripture that you just said is you know exactly i mean the wealth is available to us it's there for us yeah. So it's a matter of how what we do. Now, there's a couple of um, there's a few comments here, but we need to go to the research. So I'm going to first acknowledge these comments. Um, so Jamie Moranci is saying you're already she's repeating what you basically said. She's saying mm-hmm. you're already born in a state of abundance. Believing otherwise is operating from a place of lack. Um, and then Tiffany is saying give and it should be given unto you. Love it. Um, Aurora star is saying, um, believe it first and act out of the belief. Powerful. So the, you're, you're resonating with people. So, <laughs> um, but the, the research is going to fall right in line with exactly what we're talking about. So let's go ahead and get into this research. In the interest of science, 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 science. All right. So what I'm going to give you all is um, some some statistical research, but also some psychological mindset research. So statistically, a Gallup poll found that only a third of Americans, which is 32 percent, maintain a household budget. So that's not very many people. Um, I mean, speaking from a grand scale. So only 30 percent of Americans have a long term financial plan. That includes savings and investment goals. Um, and for those families that make $75,000 per year or more, they're more likely to have a long-term financial plan. Um, a 2017 report in Market Watch found that half of American households currently are living paycheck to paycheck. And I'm sure that was 2017. This is the grand year of the Twilight Zone 2020. So I'm pretty sure that that is a um, probably even more now. 19% have saved zero to cover an emergency expenses. So 2020 is the emergency year. So those people who have already prepared for 2020, for the apocalypse, whatever it is we're going through, um, they have saved, they're prepared, they're doing okay. Um, So that's only 19% of people. 31% have less than $500 in emergency savings. $500. 
Um, 49% of Americans are concerned, anxious, or fearful about their current financial well-being. Um, and, and what's interesting here is that low income is not always to blame for financial hardship. So you just spoke to that, Ahmad, that, you know, you can drive this fancy Audi with the curtains and, and be, you know, doing, you know, bringing in a good amount of revenue. Um, so it's not necessarily being low income that indicates um, financial hardship or anxiety over finances, um, you know, as, you know, you know, the great rappers of the day said, more money, more problems. <laughs> and, you know, there there has to be a lot of truth to that. Um, and so I'm going to pause for a second a little bit just with those statistics and get a little bit of your thoughts on that. And then I have a little bit more information about money mindset that I would love to get your thoughts on. So what are your thoughts on these statistics here? Uh, I love them. I, I repeat those statistics a lot to a lot of people that are engaged with my organization. Uh, we spend our way out of wealth. And what I mean by that is we are already caught up in a lot of financial traps. Um, psychologically, we're, we've been financially traumatized, mm. but uh, we're caught in financial traps. Say, for instance, you take out a student loan to go to college. You come out of college and that student loan is compounding against you every month and you're not even aware of it. That's a trap. You get uh, credit cards. Now you got student loans and credit cards. That's another trap. And then you need a car to get to work. So now you got three traps and you're not even aware that um, these traps are holding you down. So by the time you figure that out, you're probably a half a million dollars in debt. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And those credit cards, um, and I don't know how that's working now because it's been 20 years since I was an undergrad, but they make sure you know about those right away, you know. Right away. As soon as you walk through the, you know, the cafeteria, they got the tables all set up, set up and you yeah. can apply. You don't, even, you don't even have income, but you can apply for a credit card. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> that's a trap. So student loans, credit card, car. Now just imagine if you have a house, you could be about half a million to $700,000 in debt. And you don't okay. even, you don't, you're not even understanding that you're caught up in a trap already. Right, right. And, you know, and I'm sure you've seen those those memes that have gone around Facebook, you know, would you rather have an $800,000 um, check or in your bank, or would mm -hmm. you rather have a 100 uh, credit score? Mm -hmm. We have 15 seconds. What do you recommend is the better way? <laughs> Both. I tell people to focus on your net worth versus your FICO score. You focus on your net worth and your cash flow, your FICO score will automatically go up and you utilize credit to generate revenue, not for consumption purposes. There you go. There you go. When we come back, I have some money mindset uh, tidbits that I'd like to share. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Pamela, and I am joined by Ahmad R. Perry. I want to make sure I got that letter right. Ahmad R. Perry. Uh, and we are talking wealth today. Um, and uh, great nuggets. Um, it seems that our crowd is very much um, appreciating the nuggets that we're dropping today. I mean, this is information we need. Everybody who's watching, this is just a, a quick masterclass, if you will, on finances. If you really want to delve in and get into this and learn this stuff, it takes commitment. It takes consistency. It means to really um, delve into this on a more consistent basis. So this is just the glossing over some important tidbits, but you really got to be committed to this stuff. So I just want to share <clears throat> a couple of um, information or tidbits about um, money mindset, money maturity, because a lot of, you know, I've mentioned how, you know, we, we, 
learn from fear um, sometimes in the church, but not always. Of course, I don't want to just blame the church. We've got our households. We've got our parents. We've got ways that we were um, raised. We've got our surroundings, our environment. All of those things impact how we think about money and how we think about money impacts how we utilize money. So there are four um, negative money attitudes that um, can hold us back. And the more we are aware of these attitudes, the more we can actually resolve these attitudes. And this comes from one of the coaching textbooks that we use at the Academy of Creative Coaching by Grotsky and Allen. So number one is the deprived attitude. Um, and really it says that it's it's this idea that um, you know, I, I'm not going to get additional training to develop my skills because it costs too much, you know, or, um, you know, I fail to give my business um, the equipment and the supplies and the things that it needs to flourish because ah, that stuff costs too much. So you're not going to invest in yourself. So you have this deprived attitude. Um, the next one is a dissociated attitude. So maybe you grew up believing that money was mysterious because nobody in your family understood how to make money. Um, it may not feel important because it never made sense to you. Um, and you ride in a, 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 an emotional money roller coaster. So you're surprised or happy and high when you get it. And then you're confused and devastated when you don't get it because it's a mystery to you. You just, you know, it comes when it comes. So that's the dissociated attitude. Then there is the um, demonized attitude. And this is basically the idea that um, money is wicked. You know, maybe you believe that money is inherently wicked. You you watched anxiety on your parents' faces when they talked about money. Um, so you feel scared or impure when you have to deal with it. You're reluctant to raise your rates. This is for business owners. You're reluctant to negotiate. You lowball yourself. Um, and you hold yourself, um, you hold boundaries about your established um, financial policies. You find all aspects regarding money unpleasant and suspect, Okay. And then there is, um, oh, that was it. That was it. I'm sorry. There was three. So you have the dissociate, the deprived, you know, I, I don't, there's, you know, it's kind of a mindset of lack dissociated. I don't really know how money works. If it comes great. And then you have the demonized attitude where money is evil and I'm just not really going to deal with it in a healthy way. So your thoughts, Ahmad, do you see these kinds of mindsets play out? You might have to start. All, all the all the time. I'm a psychology major too, so I see it all the time. Um, there is definitely those one or all three of those going on in one person at the same time. You just have to get over that, right? That's why I make the statement that we've been financially traumatized. You have to get into the environment for your wealth consciousness to grow. And that's what I did. When I was an investment advisor at 20, I was in an environment that was totally different than what I grew up around. Uh, I was around a a group of guys that were making like half a million dollars before they got out of the bed because they had passive and residual income coming in. So at that point, I realized that I would never work for a wage. I always wanted to work for commission or, you know, passive income. So I've built really? over the years uh, products and things of that nature that I can get paid for doing the work one time, but get paid over and over and over again for it. I would imagine that there are some people for whom that statement you know, that's terrifying. I, I'm not going to work for a wage. I'm only going to work for commission. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to hear more about that. You know, oh, what so so <laughs> when I, in my early years and I was an investment advisor, like my entire family thought I was crazy. Like you need to get a real job. Why are you getting out of the military? You know, you need to go work at the shipyard. You know, I always work for a commission. 
I had a house when I was um, 20 years old and I sold it at 21. I walked into a bank with a $60,000 check in my hand. I thought somebody was going to hit me in the head because of that, you know, demonized mindset that I had adapted. But um, a couple of months after that, I made $22,000 on my first week on the job as an investment advisor. So I thought I was rich with $82,000 in the bank. So I told my mom, she can, re she can retire. Just call me when you need money. She told my whole family I went broke in three months. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, but that was an eighty-two thousand dollar lesson that I learned of having the mindset to handle money and knowing the mindsets of other people as it relates to money when you have money and you're around. So it's it's a very um, you have to be very disciplined. You know what's interesting is I had a, a uh, probably a twenty thousand dollar lesson when I was around that age. Um, mm -hmm. I, I bought a house in California and the 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 market was amazing. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden the, this was back in the, I don't know, uh, 2000. So all of a sudden everything shot up, everything mm -hmm. cost, but I sold before that. So I actually made a hundred thousand dollars on that sale and I'm 26 and I take some of that money, pay for a wedding. Yeah. I paid for a wedding, paid for a honeymoon, put a down payment on a house in Wisconsin nothing to show for any of that. And the house, I didn't, I didn't get it, you know? And so it's like, whoo, the lessons that we learn, you know, because we think right. we have a big amount of money and it's like, oh, throw a little over here, throw a little over here. And it was never again. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so now you have the, um, the experience and the lesson and um, in the book, Think and Grow Rich, it talks about how all of the experiences that we go through in life has a monetary value attached to them. So we just got to figure out how to reverse that that um, lesson into quantifiable means, which we call money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm grateful that those lessons happened in the 20s. Um, you know, but there are people who are experiencing these lessons much later in life. How right. do people bounce back? It's, when it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Um one of the things I like to tell people is it only takes four years, like four disciplined years to become a millionaire. And then I tell people wow. only 1% of the population actually reaches uh, the income bracket of $400,000 or more a year. So get to $200,000 a year first before yes. you try to get to, you know, um, get to that level first. And that's a really good lifestyle. And then start thinking 100 years ahead for your children or your family members that may be coming behind you and make sure they have a great foundation and you teach them the principles so that they can won't make the same mistakes as you make. Right. So what is it? What is a millionaire by definition? Does that mean that your your paychecks add up to a million? Is it your assets that is it no. your net worth? What is a millionaire? A millionaire is a person that has a million dollars in assets and your liability, once you take your liabilities away, you still have a million dollars. I know a lot of millionaires that are broke. I know a lot of million dollars, millionaires who have horrible FICO scores. That's exactly um, what I asked that question. <laughs> so if you make a million dollars and you spend $10 million, you're still broke. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of making 30,000 and you spend a hundred thousand. So right. don't get caught up on the dollar amount. You're already rich. Be caught up on your fiscal habits, your your daily habits, how you relate to the money. Don't get caught up on it, you know, chasing certain things and certain items. If you're 
anxious when you wake up in the morning because you're thinking about money. That's not good. No, it's not. Well, I, when we come back, we're going to go to a break, but when we come back, I want to learn about these fiscal habits. So if you can maybe think about whatever it is you want to share with us, <laughs> um, but I want to learn about these fiscal habits and, and what we can do leading up to, you said four years to become a millionaire. What the heck does a person have to do to get there? So when we come back, stay with us. This is going to be good. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to the Live Exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, and today I am joined by Ahmad Arperi, and we are talking wealth and such great information over the past hour. Um, right before the break, I promised that I would ask Ahmad to share with us some of those nuggets, those tidbits, um, the healthy habits <laughs> um, of, of financial well-being, and really also what it takes to get to a million in four years. So Ahmad, the floor is yours. So uh, it's like working out, right? If you ask yourself, what do I need to do to be in shape? You have to get up and go to the gym. So you have to do the same with your money. You have to make sure you have a budget and know your numbers every single day. What do you have coming in? What do you have going out? Then you have to invest. You have to put your money to work. And actually, the Bible talks about trading um, as well in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Check that out if you can. But you need to trade because it says one day you will make a profit. People don't want to trade because they don't want to take a loss. But if you trade long enough, if you invest long enough, one day you will make a, a profit. And I've shown people how to make uh, 100%, 200%, 300% return on money in, this, in the financial stock market. And you have to realize in, in America, there are only three ways to generate wealth. That's the financial markets, real estate, and some form of entrepreneurship. Um, or if you're not going to be an entrepreneur, you definitely need to take the money that you're making from your W-2 income and put it to work in one of those other two verticals. Um, but that's the only three ways to generate wealth in America. Financial markets, real estate, and some form of entrepreneurship. Wow. So we need to get... <laughs> knowledgeable and get into it somehow. Um, yes. That's, that's yes. very interesting. Yeah. You know, because now let's, let's be clear about entrepreneurship because there's a lot of people who are involved with, you know, these get rich quick schemes. How do you know what entrepreneurship is legit? What's not, you know, what forms of entrepreneurship that is? Um, I mean, do you have to do your research? Um, there are, things out there that can burn you. But the cheapest business to start is the capital management business. If you got into the real estate market right now with an investment property, how much do you have to put down? About 10%. Um, right. If you got into the financial market, you don't have to put anything down. You just need to take the money that you have in your savings account that's only making you 0.00015% a year and put it in the market and make 10% a month. Wow. Wow. Well, And, so and thank you. Um, I see that Ange put a um, the, put the ecclesiastic scripture up. I was going to ask some. Can somebody put that scripture up, please? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Now we all have it. We can always go back to the comments. We can always look it up. And uh, so thank you for putting that there. Um, so so this was wonderful. Um, uh, the time went way too fast. Um, I, I most certainly have to ha have to have you back because this information is valuable. And maybe we will just focus in on on these three areas next time, maybe focus in on what it means to trade, what it means to, you know, um, invest in, in property and what it means to entrepreneurship. Um, but we needed to 
we needed all these nuggets that you gave today. So, um, so I appreciate that. I would love for you to share with everybody how they can reach you, how they can learn more um, about your um, organization and how they can reach you. So uh, I wrote a book called The Only Way Out, How to Escape Poverty and Live the Life of Your Dreams. You can get that book at theonlywayouttour.com. And you can follow me on Facebook, Amad Perry, or on Instagram at Amad Perry Inspires. Okay, great, great, great. Yes, so definitely connect with him. I'm gonna be connecting with you and, and following <laughs> what you're doing from here on out. Um, I love that you have a book. So everybody um, definitely go, go check it out. Um, this is really good stuff. So before we go ahead and close out this hour, do you have any final words um, of wisdom that you wanna part with? Yes, believe in your genius. We were all born with, a, with divine intelligence. We have to stop questioning our intelligence. We're well-educated and um, operate from that degree of certainty that we've been given at birth. Yes. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Don't doubt your genius. We all have a level of genius in us and we're all, you know, have the potential and the capacity to find success in, in what we do. So yes, but it starts within. So, <laughs> so this is great. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful, Ahmad. I look forward to having you back. So just, just count on it. <laughs> All right. Well, be interested. Thank you for having me and yes. enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Absolutely. Absolutely. We also just got a comment when I think we all saw from Lee Ashby Watts, uh, be, believe in your tenuous, um, believe, I'm sorry, believe in your genius. She corrected it. Believe in your genius. So yes, yes. Um, so, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this first hour. Second hour, we are going to be talking um, to somebody. So we'll be dealing with the, the home ownership piece of it. So um, we will have a realtor who's going to be joining us and she's going to be sharing uh, some information um, about that as well, which Ahmad, I'm, I'm sure you totally could have done that too. Um, <laughs> as Ahmad said at the beginning of the hour, he has got a, a commercial building that's being um, built right now in Atlanta. On the west side. On the west side. So, yeah, he knows a little something about that, too. So, um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Stay with us. Continue to comment. And uh, we will be right back. Thanks, Dr. Ben. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, this is uh, the Live Exchange. I am Dr. Pamela, and today we are talking about what it means to accumulate wealth, what it means to be financially healthy, to be financially stable, um, and to really exceed. We want to exceed stability. So that is what today's show is all about. In the first hour, we had an awesome guest, Ahmad R. Perry, and we discussed um, his strategies, his um, nonprofit organization, which is called um, Generation to Come Foundation. So definitely want to check that out. Um, and some really good tools and tips for maintaining financial security, but also generating wealth and, and getting to the point of millionaire status. What does that mean? It's not as hard as we think. It takes a lot of diligence. It takes belief. As he said in the first hour, we need to believe in our genius. We are all born with divine intelligence. Thank you for putting that there, Felicia, um, because this is this is key, and it really does start with the mind. 
and everything else will follow. So this hour, we have a great um, a guest as well, and we are going to continue the conversation by looking at real estate and what it means to um, invest in real estate, some of the challenges, some of the barriers, but most importantly, how to overcome those challenges and barriers um, and to acquire the real estate um, that is going to um, help generate that wealth. Um, so stay with us. We have a lot to talk about this hour and um, we'll be right back on the live exchange. Welcome back to the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela. And today we are talking about what it means to generate wealth. And during this hour, we are going to talk about real estate and what it means to uh, get that real estate and understand how it works. So our guest, Maisha Majors, is the real estate agent who is joining us today. She grew up in Southern California and started her career in servicing and sales more than 20 years ago. Maisha has quickly risen in her real estate career within the past seven years and has set a great record of listing homes for top dollar and selling them fast. Maisha's career started in mortgage servicing, where she rose quickly into top leadership roles, negotiating short sales and working closely with real estate professionals to help shared clients reach their goal. Even working with the bank, Maisha worked with many aspects of mortgage and real estate servicing while representing the bank. Maisha is a family-oriented mother and wife. She loves spending time with her husband and son as well as their extended families. She is naturally a people person and loves to help people in all aspects of the real estate market. And that is exactly what she's going to be doing today. Welcome, Maisha. Hello. Hello. How are you? It's been like 20 years. I know. It's been forever, Dr. Pam. Maisha and I sang in the choir at Loveland Church. We've got a shout out Loveland Church. Um, 20 years ago, <laughs> choir. Yeah. Um, yes. So, um, and I have been following her journey and watching what she's doing in the real estate world. And there was just, you know, I was like, we need to talk to her. We need to talk to her. So um, I, I, first of all, welcome. And um would love to just kind of um, hear how did you get into this uh, into this field? So um, I first got into real estate. Um, first of all, I've been in like I was in the servicing world forever, working in the banks, and I used to negotiate short sales for the banks. And what short sales are is basically when a client has purchased a property, um, or not a client, a person has purchased a property, and then due to whatever change in circumstance in their life, they have to sell that property, but that property does not have the equity required to sell it and make a profit. So they have to come and ask the bank to accept less than what they owe on the property to sell that property. So they call it a short sale. So I used to negotiate them for the bank for years. I did that for probably like 13, 14 years. And so You know, in my head, I was like, I can do this on my own once I saw what the real estate agents were doing because I had to directly deal with them and then go back and get, you know, bank approval to accept those shortages. Um, And so what happened was I was working for 
a big bank. Um, I won't necessarily name it, but I was working for one of the big banks that's still out there. Um, and they laid everyone off. And at the time they laid everybody off, my son was due in March and they laid us off in January. So oh, there gosh. was no way for me to get a job at that time. I mean, I won't say there was no way, but I was just like, I'm nobody's going to hire me right now because they know as soon as this baby is born, I'm going to be on leave. Right, right. <laughs> so my husband said, why don't you try real estate? You've always wanted to be in real estate. You've always said you can do it. Why don't you try it? That way that'll give you time to be home and, you know, be with the baby. And so why not? So I started taking all of the tests, the exams, quickly got it done. By the time he was probably two or three months, I started the process of selling real estate. And so, you wow. know, it was not easy at first. And my husband made me make him a promise that I would give it at least a year. That's fair. Because he wanted <laughs> me to be home with the baby for at least a year. But so I was like, okay, I'll do this for a year. And I was pleasantly surprised at how quickly things picked up. And wow. because of my previous knowledge working in the banks, I was able to help people in a way that, other agents are not able to help them sometimes. They don't have that background. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, is this, is this, would you consider this real estate as a form of entrepreneurial, uh, an entrepreneurial endeavor, or is this more of, um, is it more traditional in, in terms of working for a company? Like, how does that? So um, I consider it entrepreneurial for myself because I am, I'm a solo realtor, even though I do work under a brokerage, the brokerage is just there as a buffer for a name, basically. So I work for Berkshire Hathaway. They're basically a name attached to me. They provide me with um, insurance. So if somebody tries to sue or something, I can be covered. But I do pay for that insurance because all of my um, escrows, are attached to them receiving a piece of them. So got it. technically yeah. paying, I'm paying for that service. But, you know, other than that, I'm pretty solo. I mean, I work from home. I, you know, reach out to my broker if I need guidance on something. But for the most part, I'm on my own. I'm in the process of getting my broker's license right now as well. So once okay. I have that, I will have that option to say I'm completely solo, not attached to anybody and wow. just for myself. So, yes, I consider myself an entrepreneur. I have, you know, gone through the process of creating like a business, having business accounts, business taxes and everything else. So, yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is that you're you're in California. California is a very interesting market. Um, when you know, my first house, I bought it in California, Rialto, in fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you know, it, and, and the value went up when the California housing rates went up dramatically in early 2000s. Right. Um, and then it fell. And then where is it now? You know, has it stabilized? Are small homes still multi-million dollar homes. I mean, how does that balance out in um, in terms of the ups and downs California's had over the last couple of decades? So California has definitely um, come full circle. We are back um, in a stable condition right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say it is um, the small homes like in Rialto, like a small home in Rialto, depending on what part of Rialto you're in, you're going to need at least $400,000 for just you know, a basic 
for just a basic home. If you want a newer home in Rialto, you're probably going to need close to five hundred thousand. Wow. Um, so mine was one thirty back in right <laughs> years ago. So that, that's that's different. Okay. So it's definitely different. Um, right now, we are in an extreme real estate boom. Okay. I mean, we can't keep houses on the market more than probably three, four days. If it's wow. on the market more than, I would say if it's on the market longer than that, it's the higher priced home. So anything priced, I would say over about 550 mm-hmm. and up, you may have three weeks. Okay. Maybe wow. a month. Maybe a month. But anything in the low fives and under, they're flying off the market like hotcakes. Everything has multiple offers. So I do see the market getting back like it was in the 2000s prior to it falling. So I am concerned with what I'm seeing um, and what I know Mm -hmm. that we will see another, I don't know if I would call it a collapse, but another slowing of the market and kind of downturn because you know we're seeing properties with like 50 offers on it wow wow and people are like outbidding and going as high as you know 30 40 50 thousand dollars over asking removing all of their contingencies so even if it doesn't appraise they're willing to pay the extra so wow. those things are what was happening then as well so that's why it kind of concerns me um, we'll see what happens. I think this election will play a big role in what happens. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm planning on asking you about that as well. Um, but, but first, I'm curious to know, how, so how do regular people buy a house? <laughs> and I know it's like, what do regular people <laughs> look like? But but how do regular people buy a house? Because, I mean, I would think that, okay, uh, it, you know, the cost of living in California is high. So I wonder, does Already. that mean that the income is higher because I'm thinking a, a family of four that wants to buy, you know, I, I don't know, a two, three bedroom house and they got to spend four or $500,000. That doesn't sound like regular family income. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so of course our incomes in California are not all, but a lot of them are more conducive to the cost of living out here. Okay. So most families who are purchasing, say a four, because most people are looking for three, four bedroom homes, some even larger, um, you know, most of them are spending anywhere. And I mean, just to be honest, I mean, I'm not saying that I can do it, but I see other, you know, I see my clients doing it. A lot of them have really good jobs. A lot of them are professionals and, you know, whether they be doctors, um, lawyers, um, you know, in the medical field, they're making payments on homes probably over $3,000 a month. Wow. So, That's not regular people money, but maybe it is no. for California, but it's just, you know. No, but the average person. So, you know, some of my buyers who are first time home buyers trying to get in the market and buy their first home right now, it is challenging. I will be honest. Yeah. If they don't and that's have. Why- I have you here because I want you to talk about, and we're going to talk about, you know, how do, how do we, create access for more people to be able to buy houses. And I know you've, you know, you've seen enough of it to know here's how you do it. So, so stay with us, everybody, you know, we're, we're going to get you in a home. (laughs) 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 We'll be right back.
Family says that this home here to my right was initially valued at a price far below their expectations and far lower than other homes in this neighborhood. So they did an experiment and they say the result demonstrates the literal cost of racial bias. Roy's wrong if I well it's way under, you know, um, this is this is just weird. So we're going to order another one. And, you know, I obviously had a bunch of questions. The bank scheduled a second appraisal. Horton made some interior changes. So I thought that most likely it would make a difference if I took down um, the family pictures that we had in the home and, you know, basically any markers that there were African-Americans living in the house. The difference between the first and second appraisal, $135,000. Experience, and we just felt that, you know, maybe it was outright incompetence, but it seemed like targeted incompetence, and yeah. it seemed like incompetence that to us was suspicious. All right, welcome back. Um, so we had we're today we we're talking about uh, generating wealth in this hour. We're looking at home ownership, and um, as you just saw in the clip there, there was a, quite a difference between um, when they took down the art or any um, evidence of African Americans living in the house versus you know the appraisal was about one hundred thirty thousand dollars different. I think I saw this posted on your page as well, Maisha. Um, yeah. Is it ignorance? Is it incompetence? Is it, what is it? What's happening? It is what we know it to be. It is. <laughs> um, it's, it's racial bias, honestly. Um, I have had experiences with appraisals um, where the appraiser was biased. Um, and so I know it to be true. Um, I posted it on my page and some people, you know, in the real estate market argued me down and said it can't be true. This could not have happened. It had to be another reason, really? but it wasn't. So um, when I first was new in the market, maybe, I mean, not in the market, but a realtor, maybe I had been a realtor, maybe a year and a half, two years. And a friend of mine had me sell her home. And um, the home was in San Bernardino, um, California, and it was on the nicer side of San Bernardino, close to the country club. So the comps in the area um, dictated what I listed the properties for, of course. Um, and when the appraiser showed up, because um, we had a, we got an offer pretty quick, appraiser showed up, and he um, first of all he showed up late. My client. Um, happened to be home. And so um, I had met the appraiser there, didn't know my client was going to be there. So it was a good thing because I got to see what transpired. So yeah. um, he showed up about an hour late when he got there, um, completely rude attitude. And, you know, my client was like, oh, I didn't know you were still showing up. And he was like, well, you know, of course I was showing up. We had an appointment. And so he said, well, you're, you know, an hour late. And she's, you know, going back and forth with him, asking him, what's the scope of your appraisal? What do you do? And he was very offended by the fact that she was asking him these questions. And he says, well, since you're worried about me being late, um, stop asking questions and let me do my job. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I was like, you know, really shocked and asked him, you know, what's the problem? And, you know, I'm the realtor. So I introduced myself and he's just like, I don't have time for small talk. I have, you know, however many more appraisals to do today. So long story short, when the appraisal came in, the appraisal was um, definitely probably about 30,000 under where the property was listed. Mm -hmm. And we were like, this doesn't make sense. So as we dissected the appraisal, he neglected to put that the home had any upgrades to it. The house had completely been gutted and redone. 
Wow. He said that there was wood fencing in the backyard. It was all brick wall. Wow. Um, he, um, it, it would, the, you know, there were shutters throughout the whole house. He said it was um, blinds and all mm-hmm. these things. So we went back and forth between, because my client wasn't the buyer. So the buyer, you know, wanted to know, you know, well, would you reduce your price? And of course, of my client said, no. Yeah. And yeah. So we went back and forth. Long story short, nothing ended up happening. It was basically like he say, she say. Oh, my God. A lot of things. And so we had to go ahead and decline that offer and put it back on the market, found another buyer. The next appraiser came and appraised it over where it was listed. Wow. Wow. So it seems concrete enough that there is a it's written here that there is a, a wood fence, but there is a brick wall in the backyard. I mean, is there no recourse when when there are discrepancies that are that obvious? Well, he went through and he fixed all of the discrepancies, but kept the, kept the price. value the same. He kept says the same. a need in updating the value. My client um, went as far as reporting it and putting in a filing a complaint with the Department of Real Estate Appraisals, um, whatever yeah. the little thing is. And um, unfortunately, it was turned back that it was inconclusive. There's not enough, you know, evidence. Even with us both giving our take on what happened. So your real estate colleagues who saw your post and mm-hmm. kind of debated that, because um, surely they have seen cases like this as well. So I'm curious to know that. Is oh, this no, they haven't seen anything like this is what, you know, the ones debating say. Yeah, I was going to say that <laughs> they've seen it many times and, and attribute it to something else or didn't acknowledge it. But there, but we know this happens. And yeah. so it makes me wonder, is there a level of denial? I think I know the answer to that question. Um, but yeah, I, we have to go to a break. Um, but okay. I, I, just, I thank you for telling that story because um, I think the lesson in that is to be aware, read the appraisal and, and be willing to not just accept whatever is said because- Absolutely. Yeah, so, so stay with us. We have more for you when we come back on the live exchange. Okay. Um, it's, it's looking at uh, the disparity, disparities in ownership, and I, I really look forward to hearing Maisha's take on this. Um, so there's been a pattern, and, and we know about this historically speaking, but what's important here is that this pattern is still continuing. And it's really the idea that there are uh, higher levels of loan denials for people of color across the country. So when people are trying to buy a house, they're um, much more likely to get denied the loan um, than white people. So including in major metropolitan cities such as Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and San Antonio, um, African-Americans specifically face the most resistance in Southern cities like Mobile, Alabama, Greenville, North Carolina, Gainesville, Florida, and for Latinos in um, Iowa City, Iowa, it was particularly high there. So this disproportionate, the the disproportionate denials and limited anti-discrimination enforcement, because there are anti-discrimination laws, but there's a difference between the laws and enforcement, um, which I think was evidenced in the case that Maisha um, spoke about um, earlier. This helps explain why the homeownership 
gap between whites and African-Americans still exists. Um, it was shrinking since the 1970s, but it has exploded um, since the housing bust. So now that gap is actually wider than it was during the Jim Crow era. What is going on? I know you have the magical answer, Maisha. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I was discussing what happened um, when, you know, when we were talking about how the market crashed before. Right. The people who were most affected by it were black and brown families. Yeah. Um, those were the people who were put into, um, so to speak, predatory loans that they should not have been in. Loans that were not safe or smart for them to be in. Um, they were given teaser rates by telling them they could do interest only loans and not given all of the details. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't read the fine print when they're getting something that they are excited about getting. They feel like they've accomplished and look at what I'm doing. So many people don't read the fine print and it's not always their fault. You will have lenders and realtors who are like, just sign, sign, sign. These are normal Everybody signs these documents. You don't need to read into them. You need to read what you're signing anytime you're signing a contract to have to pay something back. Um, you definitely want to read. So that plays a big part in it. And now you have a lot of black and brown families who some are still struggling and suffering through that. And yeah. even though they may have good incomes, even though they may have stable jobs, some of them are very shy and scared about starting that process again because they don't want to get themselves caught up again. Some of right. them are still um, lacking the credit scores needed. And so many people don't realize what some of the, you know, our counterparts sometimes do to keep their credit clean. You know, mm -hmm. you look at like a, the president of the United States, you know, he's a habitual bankruptcy filer. Some people do that to honestly clean their credit and get people to extend additional credit to them. Mm -hmm. um, and our people don't usually know those tricks. Our people usually don't know that you can contact the credit bureau agencies and dispute anything on your credit. Yeah. Um, a lot of times they don't realize that once something has been charged off, you no longer are obligated to pay it anymore. Right, um, right. And a lot of our people suffer from being harassed by creditors and they don't realize their rights. And so because of that, Sometimes we stay in a position of having um, bad credit and just for years that could be cleaned up. So they have to get in contact with the right people who can set them on a path of saying, let me help clean your credit up. And I mean, I've had clients literally within two, three months have their credit skyrocket to yeah. 100 points just to put them in a position to purchase. Right. And didn't realize yeah. all of the old crap that's just been sitting there. So yeah, we, we we have the opportunity to educate ourselves if we are among the right um, people who are not predatory, absolutely. who are you know who who are really do have their well being. Um, and you would think that a good real estate agent would have somebody's well-being and it's not always the real estate agent sometimes it's the mortgage companies mm -hmm. um they, they, they want i mean don't you guys want that commission you know so it, it would seem to me that there's a lot yeah, 
Yeah, and it, you do. but you have a lot of people who want it bad enough that they still are not honest with people. Yeah. And so you can't yeah. be so hard up to make a commission that right. you're not honest with people. Some of my clients have been with me for two, three years before they even purchase anything from me. I don't make any money. Yeah. Yeah. It's advising them. But you have to be willing as an agent to advise people, to walk with them and help them through the process. Because buying a home, as you know, is not an easy task. And it's, it is definitely, um, you know, um, intrusive into your finances. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. People are scared about, you know, divulging so many things. It's, um, it's not necessarily the, um, it doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies until you get your keys. It, 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 it truly doesn't. And, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you that when in my, I guess, home buying track record, um, I, I have, I, so I'm, I purchased my first, I'm sorry, my fourth home. And I'll tell you the, the fourth home was much more difficult to buy than the first second unit. First, you get the home buyers benefits, the first time home buyers and all of that. But the fourth home I think was the most difficult, I think, because I perhaps I was in a completely different income bracket. And I really believe that I was experiencing some level of racism and sexism, being a single mom, buying a home that just me and my daughter are going to live in that has many more bedrooms than just me and my daughter. And I, I mean, I, I was asked along the way, why do you need that? Why do you, this is from the P, you know, why do you need that, that much house? Because that's, that's what I want. You know, and, and so I was asked <laughs> that. I was denied the loan four different occasions. And, wow. and I'm, I'm telling you this so that you can maybe educate me and the audience about what we need to do in this kind of situation, because I think I learned something, but I don't know if I really learned. I, I don't know if I'm accurate, but what I experienced each, each time I was denied, um, I did not accept the denial. Um, it was a verbal denial, you know, you know, sorry, Dr. Lari, we can't accept your, um, you know, okay, why? Because I already got the pre-approval. I've already put a good money amount of money down. It was a um, new construction. So not only the regular down payment, but also the construction payment. And so I wasn't going to let this go easy. Um, but the question, you know, I asked was, so I need to understand why I'm not approved. Well, your credit score and, you know, you're just a high risk applicant. Okay, wait, what, what my credit score meets the qualification, my income meets the qualification. What are we talking about? Okay, we'll get back to you. And they never got back to me, but then they would continue the process. And so again, two months later, oh, sorry, you know, yeah, we can't, we can't. And so they're still asking me for paperwork throughout this whole process. Yeah, we can't approve you. Okay, I need to understand why. Same question, same response. Well, you know, your credit score and your high risk, what do you mean by high risk? And again, my credit score and my income meet the requirements. Why am I being denied? Well, and then I did bring up the fair housing. You know, I said, I want to make sure this is not a case of discrimination, but that this is actually, I'm being denied for legitimate reasons. I think that scared them. And they never gave me anything in writing, ever saying that I was denied for the loan. But four different times through this home building process, they verbally told me I was denied. Every time I challenged it, they would not give me a reason. And they would just continue the process, ask me for more paperwork. I didn't receive my approval until 30 minutes before the house closed. I refused to accept no for an answer unless they gave me a legitimate reason and in writing. And so I'm wondering 
Is there something to not accepting the denial if they don't give you a legitimate reason? Because they wouldn't, it was as if their hands were tied. The last time they said, well, I'm not going to argue with you about this anymore. This is the final decision. We're not approving you. And I said, I need to know why. <laughs> and they couldn't give me a reason why. And they did not deny me. So I don't know if I figured something out in there, but I would love to hear your, your thoughts. Oh, wow. I mean, I have seen things like that happen before. Um, I'm glad that you did not give up. And I think a lot of times people will just give in and take the first answer they get. Yeah. And um, not question the answers. Sometimes when you hear that a client may be high risk, it's because even sometimes when they have the income and they have the um, credit score, sometimes it may be their debt to income. It may be what they owe out, whether it be student loans, because sometimes student loans trip people up, um, oh, yeah. whether it be, um, you know, car loans past, um, you know, even though you may have the credit score, sometimes right. you still may have past ugliness in your credit that they can still <laughs> see that has not right. been cleaned up. So to them, they feel like, well, this is risky because eight years ago, she didn't pay on a Discover card mm -hmm. for two months. Um, a lot of times it's BS. So you really cannot give up. You have to ask the questions, do your research and find out, is there more to the story than what they're telling you? Um, when you bring up a lot of times discrimination, fair housing, um, they will change their tune. So a lot of times I, I hate to say that that's our like, you know, because they say, you know, we use that for everything. But sometimes things like that have to be called out. For a reason, we have to use it. It's there for a reason, and yeah. um, you know, and and I and the, and I will say that the loan, um, I guess, rep that I was working with directly, um, she said, "You know what? I am so glad you stuck with this. I've been with this business, this company for ten years, and you were the first person who has ever rejected a, re a rejection. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never seen this happen. I've never seen anybody reject a rejection, and I'm so glad you did. Um, and I'm so glad I did too. So, yeah. um, but we're, so we're, we have a question and when we come back, we're going to answer it. Um, but the question on the table is what is the best way for people to find out how to fix their credit? Um, because there's a lot of people, uh, Jamie is saying, um, I have a lot of classmates who are fixing credit right now. Um, and I would love to hear from you what we need to do. So when we come back, we will talk about fixing credit. Stay with us. Okay. The live exchange. I am Dr. Pamela and I am joined by real estate agent Maisha Majors and we are talking about the you know the power of home ownership and some of the challenges that come with it um, but also some of the strategies. So one of the most important strategies probably for home ownership is that credit score. Um, what are some ways that people have been going about fixing their credit? So there are a lot of credit um, fixed agencies, companies, so to speak. Um, yeah. I had joined one for a while, but I did um, kind of move away from them only because, not because they weren't good. Um, they were called FES. Um, a lot of people have heard of them. Um, if you are a person who is willing to do a lot of the legwork yourself, they are the company for you. 
Um, okay. They will give you the tools that you need to fix your credit by way of sending you already pre-written letters. All you have to do is mail them to the credit reporting agencies. Um, they also offer a lot of different tools to help you with financial literacy, financial um, planning. Um, you can do a will and a trust through them. They offer a lot of different things to help um, people grow and financial literacy. So they are a great company. What I found to be the, uh, um, I guess, challenge is that I would have clients who just would not ever mail the letters that they sent to them. I can imagine. (laughs) They basically sign over a agreement to allow her to basically speak on their behalf to the credit reporting agencies. Um, and she's very successful. Um, she will go through their credit and give them things that they need to do. And sometimes another thing that a lot of people won't tell you, and another thing that may have happened in your situation, Dr. Pamela, was um, if you don't have enough credit, sometimes that's the problem. And a lot of people think that paying off all of their debt mm-hmm. is the best thing to do. And it's really not. You right. really should keep credit and have revolving credit and have different types of credit, revolving credit, um, you know, credit property. If you're renting a, a apartment or a home, find out how can I have my rent payments reported to my credit? Because there is a way to have that reported. So it shows good payment history. So you definitely have to um, do that to help um, build your credit. If you don't, if you have a lack of credit, you can look into getting secured cards through banks. You can, um, I know one um, United Bank is really big on a secured card and they have accounts for, um, you know, a lot of people starting out trying to get, you know, the ball rolling and get credit. So definitely make sure that you have enough credit to, uh, play in the, you know, play yeah. the game. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting because our guest before you um, was really speaking to having no debt and, you know, mm-hmm. and really talking about how, you know, he, he's like, I don't even own a car anymore because, um, you know, anything I would use a car payment for, I use it to invest in other things. I use it mm-hmm. to uh, buy an Uber, you know, pay for an Uber if I need to go somewhere, but I really don't, you know, own anything. And um, well, I, not that he doesn't own anything. He doesn't have the debt and, you know, no student loan debt, um, no vehicle debt. And and so I'm sure that, that you know, what he's investing is, uh, well, I guess my question is um, the things that he's investing in, such as like he has an office building being constructed downtown, they got the funds for that. Um, you know, somebody in that situation, uh, you know, how does that look on a, from a credit report standpoint? I mean, he probably can buy the house cash. And I think that's probably more his approach. <laughs> well, once you, once you are liquid cash, so much money and you have assets, because mm-hmm. what he has is a lot of assets. Okay. So because of his asset status, that helps him be able to get loans whenever he needs a loan. Um, because he has properties, because he, you know, he doesn't need the, you know, all of their money. He can finance part of it himself. So um, that's what helps him. It is good to be debt free, but you also have to be smart about being debt free. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you don't want to overextend yourself. You want to make sure you're in a position to um, always cover the debts that you have out there. I mean, I remember my dad used to tell us growing up, 
don't have anything that you have to owe other than a car and a house. Be able to pay mm -hmm. everything else off. But when it comes to trying to get credit for purchasing, especially a home, you need to have some type of skin in the game as far as credit worthiness. So you will. I have clients who all they have is a house. Mm -hmm. And so they're paying their house, but that's still not enough credit to boost their scores up. So we have to have them get like a jury card or something the credit reporting person told them to get. Yeah. Um, like buy something and then pay it off. So show yourself paying it over the course of a couple months and then you should be good. So it is, a, it's such a game and, and we have to learn how to play it, you know, absolutely. to get what we need. And I, and we talked about that the first hour is understanding the, the landscape of the, of the game, mm -hmm. um, you know? And so, yes. And we talked about earlier how, you know, there is a, the, the reality of racism is it, 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 it exists. It's, it's a reality, but Absolutely. how do you recommend to people to, um, to, to move around that, to move through it, to fight it? You know, how do you as a real estate agent um, navigate through that for your clients? You know, I don't accept, you know, um, disrespect. I don't accept um, anything that if I feel like it is, that's what it is. I am willing to call it out. Um, I, you know, put myself, I mean, I saw a quote today and I was like, it's so true about black women and having to keep our cool and not be yeah. that black woman, but still be successful and still, you know, do things. You have to be smart. You have to educate yourself. You have to know your craft, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether no matter what you are, as people of color, we have to always make sure that we are 10 steps ahead of them. So we yeah. have educate ourselves because education and data help you all the time when it comes to arguing and fighting an issue. You it's so win when you come at it from an educated standpoint, not arguing, right? Talk to talk to the facts. Give the facts yeah. and move on. I I will say racism is definitely still a part of even the real estate business. There are not that many black realtors. Um yeah. But I have not had as many problems as I have heard some people have. A lot of people are scared to get in the business. They're like, how do you overcome people not wanting to work with you because you're black? And I'm like, I've had plenty of people work with me. There are plenty of people of color and plenty of people who are white who have worked with me. And I've had no problem whatsoever. Um, the you know few times that I can name problems. I stated the facts. I dealt with the facts and tried to remain calm and not get myself, you know, overexcited about the situation. And it helped when you speak, yeah. you know, the right way to a problem and you learn how to deal with people. It will go a long way and help. Um, so yeah, there's I, I would encourage people. Find you a realtor who's not only just, you know, somebody like, oh, somebody referred them to me. Yeah. Uh, interview a realtor. Make sure yeah. you're knowledgeable. Make sure that they know their stuff. Make sure that, oh, I need you to sell my grandmother who passed away's house. Have they sold a house like that before? Do they know yeah. what the process is? If it's probate, if it's, you know, a trust, do you have to make sure you have somebody who is educated and can help you. And I know you can ask me in the beginning, how do new buyers buy right now in this market? 
You have to be smart. You have to have a realtor who knows the areas. You have to have a realtor who knows the programs so they can lead you in the direction. Of course, I'm not a lender. So a lender will have to give you those programs and educate you on first time homebuyer programs and all of that. But make sure that you speak to your realtor about who they would use. Because yeah, me, I tell people, I'm giving you a lender that I'm willing to use for my own self. Yeah, yeah. And, and and back to your thing, you know, what you said earlier, know your stuff. Um, Jamie has a message here. We have to learn the game in order to uh, even play. I think we have been seek to play, but never learn the game. So not don't just learn the game if you're a real estate agent. Learn the game as a buyer. Learn the real estate game. Learn the lending game. When we do it this way, we have to, we have to lose much more than we have to win. So uh, we're going to go to a break. Agreed. We'll back. Um, got a little bit of time left and then um, we're closing out. So stay with us. We'll be right back on the live exchange. Welcome back to the Live Exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, and I am joined by Maisha Majors, and we're talking about homeownership and that whole process. Um, Maisha, uh, you know, in light of the uh, um, elections that's happening right now, I'm curious to know if there's anything that we should be paying attention to with the candidates, anything that they've said with regards to homeownership or um, that, you know, we might need to really focus in on. And then um, and here in California, they have um, answered it. And I appreciate the California Department of Real Estate um, answering it is the fact that President Trump has um, removed um, a lot of the housing protections that us as um, people of color have been protected by. Um, mm-hmm. The Fair Housing um, Act that um, President um, Obama had put into place to even further make sure that there were protections for people in protected classes. Um, Donald Trump um, and Secretary Ben Carson have basically um, decided to remove. So some states have decided that's not okay. And California is one of those states. So now within our listing agreement, whenever we list a home, now there's a fair housing disclosure that we have to have clients sign, which is a good thing because to be honest, I've had clients who say, I wish I could just sell my house to this type of person, or I just want these type of people to be in my house. Or wow. you, know, you have multiple offers and, you know, I've had sellers ask me and I'll be honest, it's been every color. It's not just, you know, yeah, I'm sure. who will ask what color are the people? Are they a family? Do they yeah. have, you know, do they have children? Do they have this? And those questions are never to be answered. It does not matter if they can, get qualified to buy this home and they've put an offer in and they've provided all of the documentation. You just, I just need to know, are you willing to accept this offer, that offer, or this offer over here? Um, yeah. you know, it's not our job to pry and pick and find out who these people are, who's trying mm-hmm. to purchase their property. So that's part of the protected people who are still being protected in some states. Not all states have done that, but some have. So Okay. That's really good information. I mean, even just from a seller standpoint to know what's legal and what's illegal to, you know, have as a part of your home selling process. Uh, do you do any, we're getting close to the end and I want to give people an opportunity to connect with you. Um, but do you do any sort of education or informationals with regards to real estate and, and how can people reach you if they are interested in working with you? 
Um, you can always reach me via uh, my website, www.majorsforhomes.com. You can also reach me um, on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on Facebook, Maisha Majors. Um, on Facebook, on Instagram, I am on there as Majors for Homes. So um, anybody have any questions, they can always reach me there. Um, I do do a lot of videos on my page. I have not, I will be honest, I have not done as many since this COVID thing hit just because I've been doing a lot of the virtual learning stuff with my son. So my attention is not where, you know, it was prior, but yes, that's how you can reach me. Um, you can always DM me, message me, um, my number is everywhere online. So you can find me um, that way as well. So anybody have any questions? There's a lot of informational videos on my pages already. So you can always click on videos and just watch some of the videos that I have put on there about the home buying and selling process. I love it. I love it. And, and so I think that really um, what we've learned today overall is to really be um, you know, be a master of whatever it is that you're pursuing. If you're pursuing buying a house, if you're pursuing wealth, becoming a millionaire, study it and know it and learn it and know your rights. Know what it is. Use your voice. Ask the right questions. If you're looking for a real estate agent, be willing to ask them the questions. Ask them how they handle cases of discrimination. Ask them what you um, you know can do what's your recourse if your appraisal is not showing up in the way that it should. Um, but it's really important that we learn how to become advocates of ourselves um, and to be armed with that information so that we can um, get to where we want. So we can break down some of these barriers. These barriers exist whether people want to acknowledge it or not, whether people um, understand it or not, the barriers exist. So we need to do what we have to do to ensure that we um, can can get what we deserve, what we have earned. So we are done. The show is over. <laughs> this has been such great information. I appreciate you so much for joining us today, Maisha. Um, I Again, feel free to reach her, reach out to her, continue to comment on um, the, the Facebook page, and we will respond. Um, so thank you all for joining us uh, to the live exchange. We are here every week, Thursdays, 11 to 1 Eastern Standard Time. And so um, join us next week for another great show. I hope that this was helpful. That is always what we aim to do here. Thank, thank you for joining us. Having me. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Have an amazing week, everyone.